Thank you so much, Dr. Bennett. And uh, thank you, Dr. Salazar, and everybody for coming to, uh, to this morning's talk. Um, it really is an honor to be here today. And, and I really want to focus this talk today on what pediatricians can do to address the national opioid crisis. We're, we're at the heart of a crisis right now that um, you, you really can't go a day without hearing about on the news, you know, seeing on TV, reading in the newspaper. Um, and I, I think the field of pediatrics uh, has a little bit of catch up to do. There are certain things that we perhaps should be doing to address this crisis. And so I really wanna make this today focused on things that you can practically bring to the work that you're doing, whether you're a pediatrician or any other health professional who works with young people. Um, and uh, as you've seen from a couple of slides now, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, so as I said, you know, we're at the heart of a, a public health crisis here and you know, as, as practitioners working with young people who may be with using opioids, we find ourselves in an unusual position and that is that from one visit to the next when we see young people who are struggling with opioid addiction, the mortality is so high that we have to worry about whether our patients are gonna make it to that next visit. And uh, this is, I think, at least when I was going through pediatric training, not something that I had to confront before. Um, and uh, really the key take home here is that children and adolescents have not been spared from the rise in morbidity and mortality attributable to opioids that we're hearing about every day on the news. So my goal for today's talk are the following. Um, one, to review the epidemiology of opioid-related harm in the US and to focus specifically on adolescents and young adults because we don't hear enough about them in the news. Two, to prescribe opioids in a manner that reduces the likelihood of risk for long-term opioid use and addiction. And then three, to ensure evidence-based screening and treatment for youth with opioid use disorder. So starting with that first part, the first objective, uh, we actually have more recent data now. The 2017 data have come out, um, but this slide shows you the 2016 data. And uh, I, I'm presenting these data specifically because it gives you a sense of what's going on by state, and we don't yet have those data granularly for uh, 2017. But what you can see is that uh, we have a map in the US that is increasingly turning darker red. States that are darker red have higher mortality rates attributable to opioid um, overdose deaths and drug overdose deaths across the US. And you can see that Connecticut, um, which is this square here, is colored darkly red, as is most of New England, as is much of the Midwest, areas known as the Rust Belt region, uh, Florida, parts of the Southwest and other parts of the South are increasingly turning darker and darker red with each passing year. And we're at the point right now where uh, in 2016, there were seven deaths per hour um, attribu attributable to drug overdose. Um, so my key questions for pediatric practitioners are these, as you look at a map like this. Well, what's happening with youth overdose rates and which opioids are involved? What percentage of youth use opioids non-medically? When does opioid use rise to the level of a formal diagnosis of addiction? And what are the neurobiological underpinnings of addiction? So starting with that first question, what's going on with teen uh, overdose deaths? Well, this study came out just a couple of weeks ago and uh, was one of the first to focus exclusively on young people. And what the study showed is between 1999 and 2016, overdose deaths rose among 15 to 19 year olds in the following way for different types of opioids. They rose 95% for prescription opioids, they rose 405% for heroin, and they rose nearly 3,000% for synthetic opioids. And this is the category that typically includes fentanyl, which you've probably heard about on the news. 
And you can see in this figure here, the x-axis of this figure represents um, a mortality rate, and the y-axis in this figure represents time, with the bottom of the y-axis 1999, the top 2016, and you can see that there's been this, this rise. There was actually a little bit of a cooling off in the early 2010s, and that was attributable to um, actually a decrease in opioid prescribing, resulting in decreased prescription opioid misuse, resulting in decreased overdoses, or at least that's what people think was going on among young people. And you can see, though, that in 2014, 2015, and 2016, there's been this really sharp uptick, and that's almost exclusively attributable to fentanyl. And so if that hasn't convinced you why youth matter in this crisis, these are the data that I take to sort of people that are taking care of adults amidst the opioid crisis. And this first data point is really critical. Two in three individuals who are adults in opioid treatment report, report that the very first time that they used opioids non-medically for recreational purposes was before age 25. And one in three report that the first time that they used was before age 18. So this really shows us that opioid misuse is a pediatric onset condition. This figure here shows what's going on with national data uh, um, with regard to non-medical use among high school seniors of prescription opioids. And what you can see is that uh, there actually was a sharp uptick in the early 2000s, probably attributable to increased availability of prescription opioids, increased prescribing of prescription opioids, and diversion of those pills. And that sort of stayed at about 13% of all uh, high school seniors reporting past year use of narcotics until about 2011. And then actually, as we ratcheted down on our prescribing of opioids, you see a nice decrease in the percentage reporting past year um, non-medical use of, of opioids. To the extent that in 2017, that number got down to about 1 in 15 students. But as I like to remind people, 1 in 15 is still two high school seniors in a typical high school senior classroom. Um, and in fact, that's about two-thirds the prevalence of asthma, this thing that in pediatrics we talk about all the time. And so it just really sort of reminds us how prevalent these concerns are. So just to take a step back and talk about some of the basics around opioids, the most commonly misused prescription opioids are oxycodone, hydrocodone, methadone, morphine, and hydromorphone. And these pills can be ingested if they're just taken the regular way. They can be ground up and inhaled or snorted. Um, and they can, if you take that powder and dissolve it in water, be injected through intravenous means. Um, and what we're really grappling with now is actually less these pills and more, as I've alluded to, fentanyl contamination. Um, fentanyl is now implicated in a majority of overdose deaths in many settings. In Massachusetts, it results in the vast majority of our overdo overdose deaths. It's upwards of about 85%. Um, and fentanyl is a highly potent opioid. It's at least 10 times more potent than heroin, probably about 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. And to be clear, this is not fentanyl that's being prescribed by doctors. In this case, this is actually fentanyl that's being manufactured overseas, most typically in China, but also in Mexico. And then these fentanyl precursors that are produced overseas are brought into the US, reconstituted into fentanyl, and then have made their way into the drug supply, such that most of the heroin that we see in Massachusetts actually has fentanyl contained within it. So you think you're getting heroin, but you're actually getting heroin plus fentanyl, which is much more potent and leaves you at high risk of overdose. And the other thing we're seeing is that this fentanyl is making it into um, people's home pill 
presses. So people will buy a pill press, they'll put some fentanyl into it along with some inert substance, stamp it, make it look like a pill um, that for all intents and purposes looks like what you would be prescribed at say CVS or another drugstore um, and then distributed and sold on the street. So what you think you're getting is one thing and you're actually getting highly potent fentanyl. So it's a really high risk environment for youth. And so this figure on the right that I've shown here shows what's going on with overdose deaths with respect to different opioids. Here the x-axis is time from 1999 to 2017 and the y-axis is number of overdose deaths. And what you can see is that really in the last sort of, you know, from 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2017, the last few years, just this skyrocketing in overdose deaths attributable to this highly potent fentanyl that has just pervasively made it throughout our drug supply. So what is addiction then? When we talk about addiction, we're really referring to the DSM-5 diagnosis of opioid use disorder. And just to sort of be really explicit about what we're talking about, we're talking about opioid use occurring over 12 months with at least two of the following features. And I won't read off all of these features, but I'll, I'll highlight a few things. First of all, numbers 10 and 11 down here are features that we remember from the DSM-4 and sort of earlier versions of the DSM. And this is really sort of the physiologic dependence part of addiction. This is tolerance, the idea that you need more and more opioids to get the same effect as you use them over time, or that if you use the same amount that you used to, you don't get the same effect. And then withdrawal, the idea that if you stop taking opioids, you have a typical pattern of withdrawal that is marked by, you know, pupil changes, uh, sweating, nausea, abdominal pain, you know, joint and bone pain, just sort of a, a really terrible feeling. Um, the other features that you'll see in this list of 11 really amount to people losing control over their um, ability to sort of manage their substance use. So people are using more than they typically would. They're trying to cut back, but they can't. They're spending lots of money on drugs. Um, and then the other feature that you see is sort of loss of ability to complete your daily functions, like going to school, being engaged in whatever job you might have, being engaged with your friends and family. And so really opioid use disorder represents sort of not just substance use, um, but substance use marked by this loss of control across multiple um, areas of your life. You'll also see that in the DSM-5, there was um, number four on this list added, and that is craving, the idea that Often, if you're not using substances, you're thinking about substances, and that can be a hallmark of, of addiction. And then we classify opioid use disorder as mild, moderate, or severe, depending on how many of these features you have. And so we tend to think of addiction as somebody who has moderate or severe opioid use disorder. Um, I want to spend just a few maybe like one to two minutes on this slide, which is, I know a little bit overwhelming, but I'm gonna break it down and try to keep this simple. When I was in medical school, I started in, in 2004, what we learned about addiction is that um, you have this part of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, it fires off dopamine, and when you get dopamine released by the nucleus accumbens and in the nucleus accumbens, you feel a reward, and that's why people use substances because you use substances and it causes this dopamine release. And that is still true to this day, but that's just really one part of a more complicated picture of addiction. And I think it's important to understand some of these brain changes because it helps us understand that addiction is a disease with fundamental changes to an organ system, just like every other disease that we worry about and study in pediatrics. Um, and also helps us to understand some of the seemingly irrational behavior of our patients who are struggling with addiction. 
So I talked about the reward system. The reward system is really marked by this part of the cycle that's marked here in blue, this idea of binge and intoxication. So let's say you are uh, Joe on a Friday night and you, are, uh, you find some pills in your parents' cabinet. Maybe you've been struggling with some anxiety and depression. You try taking the pills because you've heard something about them and all of a sudden you feel a sense of intoxication, maybe some euphoria, maybe some anxiolytic properties, some relief of the sort of baseline anxiety that you've been experiencing. And so you get that sort of pleasurable sort of reinforcing feeling. But then what happens is um, maybe not the first time you use opioids and maybe not the second, but you know, about the third or the fourth time you use opioids really heavily, you might start to develop a little bit of withdrawal when you stop using opioids. And that's mediated by the part of the cycle here that's in red. And this actually includes parts of the brain, including, for example, the amygdala, which is responsible for the fear response. And so what you start to have is you have, um, when you come down from opioids, the opposite of euphoria, it's this sort of irritability, this really bad feeling. Meanwhile, other parts of the brain, like the locus ceruleus, which is responsible for norepinephrine release, gets all fired up and starts to release um, a sympathetic drive into your system. So you start to sweat and you start to have pupillary changes and you start to have that pattern of withdrawal that I alluded to before. But then eventually you come down from that, you finish up your withdrawal, and what happens is you enter the green part of the cycle here. And this is the part of the cycle that is more complex, that we are increasingly learning more about and that is sort of new and important for us to understand. And that is that parts of the, of the frontal cortex and prefrontal cortex become preoccupied with the next time that you're gonna use substances. So, you know, whereas Joe might have been um, just using on Friday nights, at least initially, he might during the week start to think about the next time that he's gonna use. And if he keeps going through this cycle over and over and over, these circuits are gonna get stronger and stronger such that he's gonna to get to a point where those green frontal regions are gonna become so strongly primed to use substances that he's gonna to start to lose control other, over other parts of his healthy adolescent life that he's supposed to be engaging in. He's gonna be craving opioids, thinking about them all the time, unable to cut back. And so this is all just to highlight that there's a biologic basis that takes place here as people use opioids more and more. And you have this hijacking of the parts of the brain that are supposed to be responsible for what we would think of as healthy, rational behavior. Um, so that's what happens with everybody with addiction. It's an even more complicated situation when we're talking about adolescents and young adults because adolescents and young adults are supposed to be undergoing some normal, healthy brain development on top of the brain changes that you know, we were just discussing. And so young healthy brains are supposed to be developing white matter, which helps them to, and, and parts of their prefrontal cortex that are really important for impulse control and decision making. And what's, what's sort of a concerning situation with young people is that their reward systems, that nucleus accumbens system that we talked about, is fully developed by the time you hit adolescence, but those prefrontal and sort of frontal planning centers are still developing, which is why we see often some impulsive behavior with teenagers, because their brains are still learning their impulse control and planning um, sort of protocols. So we think of young people as having sort of all gas pedal and no brake. Um, meanwhile, their social development is supposed to be resulting in them developing healthy coping skills. When things go wrong, you're supposed to be able to deal with that. And interpersonal relationships are supposed to be healthy and with other young people who are engaging in healthy behaviors. And so the fact that this development is not yet complete means that young people are at risk of developing addiction. 
And conversely, what's really concerning is that substance use during these critical periods of development can make it so that these parts of the brain don't develop the way that they should, which is why when sometimes I'm working with a, say, 23-year-old who's been struggling with addiction for a decade, I'll often have the feeling that I'm working with really a, somebody with the maturity of a 14 or 15-year-old, and that's no accident. That probably involves sort of hijacking of the normal developmental processes that were supposed to have been taking place all that time. So let's talk about prescribing opioids appropriately, because I think this is really critical for pediatric practitioners. So the pendulum is swung. Um, when I was in medical school about 15 years ago, we talked about pain as the fifth vital sign, and I'm sure many people before me experienced this as well. And the idea was you should always treat pain. It's inhumane if you don't treat pain. Offer up opioids freely. And then, in sort of the early 2010s, the opioid crisis became really apparent. And there actually has been a large ratcheting down on uh, prescribing opioids. And in fact, some emergency departments across the country just say, you know, we don't prescribe opioids anymore. That's it. Um, what I want to try to convince you of is that actually there's a middle ground here, that we should still prescribe opioids. They're a class of medications that's very effective for, um, for certain types of pain. But when we do it, we should be thoughtful and we should make sure that we're trying other things first, if appropriate, and that when we are prescribing opioids, we're doing so in a way that doesn't set somebody up uh, for risk of addiction. So as I think about key questions that I would want to hear were I in your shoes, I would say, you know, what is the risk that after an initial prescription for an opioid, an adolescent or young adult will go on to engage in long-term use of that opioid? Um, are non-opioid analgesics as effective as opioids for managing acute pain? And what are some approaches to safely prescribing opioids? So this was a really nice study that came out last year in pediatrics, and it used claims data and looked at nearly 90,000 U.S. young people between the ages of 13 and 21 who underwent surgery and then had a post-operative opioid prescription written. And these data are relatively recent, although they are from an earlier time in the opioid crisis. Um, and the outcome in this study was persistent opioid use, defined as at least one repeat prescription between 90 and 100 days after the procedure. Um, and this is important because for most of the procedures that are listed in this figure, I'm not going to go into them, but they include things like uh, let's see, some orthopedic procedures, um, appendectomy, procedures in which maybe it's reasonable you'd get an opioid after that procedure, but you certainly shouldn't still be getting refills for your opioids 90 to 180 days later. And although a refill doesn't equal addiction, it's sort of an indicator that somebody's still taking an opioid when they probably shouldn't be. Um, and what this study found is that the number of young people that go on to have persistent opioid use after a post-operative um, prescription is filled is one in 20. Since this study came out, there have been other studies that have looked at, for example, wisdom teeth extraction and um, uh, prescriptions written by dentists and some other surgical procedures. And it's becoming increasingly clear that the risk of persistent opioid use and in other studies that have looked at the outcome of addiction, about one in 20, so about 5%, all the way up to maybe as high as about eight or nine percent of young people given an initial opioid prescription will potentially go on to have problems with that opioid. And so it really highlights to us that there is risk associated with these medications. But again, I, I don't want the message here to be never give an opioid because remember that for the vast majority of youth who get an opioid, their pain is effectively treated and they don't go on to have a problem with an opioid. So we just have to be mindful. Um, 
So if we think about non-opioid pain management options, there are some increasing data from the adult literature um, that just give us a sense of um, uh, what we might be able to do with youth. And then I'll show you some youth data in a second. So there was a big study in JAMA last year that was a, a randomized clinical trial looking at various doses of opioids um, and non-opioid analgesics given in an ER setting for all comer patients who come in with pain. And among adults, ibuprofen at a dose of 400 milligrams and uh, acetaminophen given at 1,000 milligrams together as a one-time dose provided equivalent pain control to oxycodone at a dose of five milligrams or to hydrocodone at five milligrams, each with acetaminophen added in them, which is sort of typically how these medications are formulated. So this gives us a sense that Tylenol, uh, sorry, acetaminophen and um, ibuprofen given together sort of have this um, uh, ability to, to address pain in a way that's highly effective. Um, and among children and adolescents, ibuprofen given at a dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram gives equivalent post-operative pain control to oral morphine after orthopedic surgery and after tonsillectomy. So again, there's this idea that it's clear that for some young people, particularly those perhaps with not severe pain, you can get by with non-opioid analgesics. And in fact, although there hasn't been a formal study conducted in the dental world, the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry also recommends um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as first line for mild to moderate pain after dental procedures. And so what you're starting to see is across these various specialties and across these sort of various procedures for which kids have pain, we can increasingly consider non-opioid op uh, options to be first line. Um, so what are the regulations here in Connecticut? Um, they're actually very similar to what we operate under in Massachusetts. And uh, in, here in Connecticut, first-time opioid prescriptions are capped. Adults getting a first-time opioid prescription have a limit of seven days that can be uh, administered during the first time. And that's not an accident. I, a big problem with longer prescriptions is that it sets somebody up to potentially develop more dependence on that opioid if they take it for too long. And it also allows for extra opioids to be out in the drug supply that can then get diverted to other people. Um, first time opioid prescriptions in Connecticut are capped at five days for children under 18. And when you prescribe these medications, if you're prescribing them to a minor under the age of 18, if the parent and guardian is present, you really also are expected to be talking about the risks associated with opioid drug use. And if it's an, an adult, particularly a young adult over the age of 18, you have to discuss the risks of addiction and overdose, the dangers of combining opioids with alcohol, benzodiazepines, and other CNS depressants, and give a reason why the prescription is necessary. So this is sort of what's expected at the state level. If Connecticut is anything like Massachusetts, these rules are not very strictly enforced, surprisingly. Um, but I do think it gives us a, a sort of policy framework under which we can think of best practices. Um, the other thing to think about when you are prescribing opioids is that we have to think about the safety of young children in the home. And it's, it's worth remembering that our ER colleagues will always remind us that um, it doesn't take long for somebody to experience, or for a child to experience um, an overdose. Um, 
Uh, parents often say that they only turned their back for a minute and found that their child got into an opioid medication that was lying out. Often kids will climb up onto surfaces. Parents will say, well, I didn't know he could reach up that high, um, but he did. And also remember that child-resistant medication bottles are not 100% child-proof. And so these are things that we should be talking about to, young par or to parents when they have young children in the home to help prescribe safely. Um, and then when we have teens who are getting opioid prescriptions, or if you're sending a, you know, a, a, um, a young child home with an opioid prescription and they have an older brother or sister in the home who's a teen, it's important for parents to be, um, we honestly recommend keeping a written inventory to keep track of medications so parents know what's in their medicine cabinets. At a minimum, we definitely recommend locking up medications. Um, and as is good practice for all adolescent providers, you should know your kids' friends and talk to their parents about this stuff. And if you have an old opioid prescription, it's important to remind parents to, to get rid of medications when they're no longer needed. So those are some best principles as we think about how to safely um, prescribe for people. Now I wanna spend a few minutes talking about when a young person might be struggling with opioids, how do you screen for it? And then what does treatment look like? And how do you refer for that kind of treatment? So here's the big problem in the United States. If you take 100 youth, so adolescents and young adults, who have opioid use disorder out there, only 11 ultimately make it to treatment among the 100 who need treatment. So there's a massive treatment gap. National data also tell us that of those 11 that actually do get treatment, only three actually get evidence-based treatment that includes medication-assisted treatment with one of the um, medications that I'm gonna talk about in a moment. So really 97% of young people who need treatment for opioid use disorder in this country are not getting what is considered to be the standard of care. So key questions for pediatricians um, in my mind as we think about this is, you know, again, what constitutes evidence-based treatment for youth with opioid use disorder? How should pediatric providers screen for substance use? Where can providers refer youth with problematic opioid use? And what are some additional simple things that every pediatric provider should do in their practice to address the US opioid overdose crisis? So this is what effective treatment looks like. It's typically a combination of two things, although we often layer on many other support services to help ensure success. But at its most basic form, <coughs> severe opioid use disorder should be treated with a medication, and the medication op options are buprenorphine, naltrexone, and methadone. These are the three FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder, um, and behavioral therapy. And we're still in the um, sort of evidence-based literature sorting out which behavioral therapies have the best uh, efficacy. Um, Ones, there's certain modalities that have shown some promise include motivational enhancement, motivational interviewing type uh, techniques, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then contingency management where you're actually providing a system of, of rewards for patients who are adherent with care. Um, I'll say that medication, and I'll come back to this in a moment, is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics because randomized clinical trials with high quality data really show us that these medications are effective in young people. Um, and as I said, for behavioral therapy, we're still figuring out which modality is best, but this sort of counseling and behavioral piece of the treatment is so critical because dual diagnosis, so comorbid depression, anxiety, ADHD, trauma, is really 
in our work, the rule, not the exception, when we have people struggling with addiction, it's almost inevitable some, that some of these other features are present. So again, just to hammer home what these pharmacotherapy options are, I said there's three FDA-approved medications, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the rationale for these and why they are helpful for us in treatment. Methadone is a full opioid agonist, meaning that when it binds to the opioid receptor, it has a full effect at the opioid receptor. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist, meaning that when it binds to the opioid receptor, it <coughs> generates a limited effect at the opioid receptor. Why this is nice is because Buprenorphine will actually um, address people's cravings by providing some opioid at the receptor, but it's actually very difficult to overdose on buprenorphine. It has this ceiling effect where you don't get the respiratory depression that you get at higher doses of other opioids. And so it's actually very difficult to overdose on buprenorphine. And then uh, naltrexone um, is an antagonist which actually blocks the mu opioid receptor, which is helpful because it makes it so that if somebody uses opioids while the receptor is blocked, they actually can't get high. So they don't get that reinforcing sort of euphoric effect. Um, so, yeah, yeah, sure. Seems like we're good. I think we're good. Um, that was good. That was a test of my ability to like do things, two things at once. Um, so, uh, so the available medications. Um, I, I've talked about the full, partial, and antagonist properties of these three medications. What's really um, critical around uh, treatment of opioid use disorder is that they all have different <laughs> rules and regulations. Methadone is the most highly limited. In fact, essentially no adolescents under the age of 18 have access to methadone, despite the fact that actually data suggests it may be the most effective medication. Um, and that's because federal legislation makes it so difficult for young people to access methadone. Uh, they actually have to demonstrate two prior quote-unquote failed attempts at treatment without medication before they can get methadone. And then they have to find a methadone treatment center that's willing to take them on, and those just don't exist. So in effect, no adolescents are getting access to methadone in this country. Um, buprenorphine is FDA approved for 16 and up because there are RCT data to support this. And naltrexone is FDA approved for 18 and up, um, uh, although we have practitioners across the country who are still using it um, off-label at underages, and I won't talk about that today. Um, methadone reduces cravings and withdrawal because it binds to the opioid receptor and so it reduces the withdrawal and it reduces the cravings that people have for methadone. Buprenorphine does the same thing. Now trexone on the other hand when it binds to the opioid receptor doesn't provide any activity there so it doesn't actually address withdrawal. Interestingly it can affect cravings which I'll talk about in a second. Methadone is a daily dose where people have to go into a methadone treatment center um, and get a dose every single day. Buprenorphine is available in multiple different formulations now. Our repertoire is growing for this medication. Um, it's a film or a tablet that's placed under the tongue every day, or you can now get it as a monthly dose, as an injection, similar to how we're doing certain forms of um, reproductive health, sort of birth control methods. Uh, and then also available as a semi-annual dose that's an implant placed under the arm, which is also a new formulation. So we're seeing some innovation in how we deliver these medications to improve our adherence, just as we have with birth control, for example. Um, buprenorphine actually requires um, people to obtain a DEA waiver. So the Drug Enforcement Agency has to endorse your ability to take this, uh, to prescribe this medication 
after you've taken an eight-hour course. And so there's a substantial regulatory hurdle to being able to prescribe this medication. And then naltrexone is available as a daily dose or as a monthly injection uh, that's recently become available. And this can be provided by any primary care provider without any special sort of DEA waiver or training required. So lots of rules around these medications with naltrexone having the fewest rules. So let me talk a little bit about why these medications work and why we would offer them. So uh, when somebody is using pills or heroin, what they do is they, you know, they take a, a pill and they get the sort of instant high um, pretty quickly. But then it's a short-acting medication or a short-acting heroin uh, acting on an opioid receptor. So they quickly come down from that. And then if they want to feel that euphoria again, they have to use right over again. And then they come down from that and then they have to use immediately again. And so what happens is people enter this cycle of kind of ups and downs, sort of addressing their euphoria. And as time goes on, it, they develop tolerance, so it becomes harder and harder to attain that euphoria. And they start to withdraw and start to have cravings when they're not using. And so people who have addiction and have physiologic dependence on opioids enter the cycle of euphoria alternating with withdrawal with very few moments where they actually kind of feel normal in between. So you can imagine it'd be very hard to take somebody in this cycle and say like, okay, go to a counselor and talk about your problems and that'll help address your substance use because they're stuck in this cycle still. So the rationale behind medications is if we wait until somebody starts to withdraw from the heroin or pills that they were taking and then give, go ahead and give them a medication like buprenorphine, which is a long acting medication dosed typically every 24 hours, we can actually get them into a dosage range where we can have them in sort of this normal place where they're not experiencing all those uh, ups and downs and they're also not experiencing a high if dosed appropriately and they're not experiencing withdrawal if dosed appropriately. And so somebody can get back into feeling normal and then we can allow them or then they'll feel sort of able to engage in whatever behavioral health you're trying to offer them. The rationale behind naltrexone is a little bit different um, so mu opioid receptors are, are really concentrated throughout these uh, reward centers in the brain that I've talked about, the nucleus accumbens and another area called the ventral tegmental area. And, uh, and so when somebody uses opioids, they're really sort of getting that reward by binding to the opioid receptors that are present in these parts of the brain. And so what naltrexone is doing, again, either in its oral, oral formulation or in its monthly injection, is it's blocking that high that somebody gets from using uh, uh, opioids. It makes it so that those brain regions don't experience the reward. And interestingly, it also reduces cravings in some patients because it turns out that the mechanisms of cravings in the brain are actually mediated by endogenous opioids, almost sort of by fluke. Um, and so when you block endogenous opioid signaling in the brain, you actually block cravings. And that's how naltrexone is actually used for other forms of addiction. It actually turns out it's used for alcohol use disorder, even though it's acting on opioids because it blunts cravings. You're seeing also naltrexone being used in some treatment, for example, of binge eating and, and other sort of um, parts of um, other sort of like mental health conditions that are marked by these sort of periods of binging and using and, and sort of uh, engaging your reward centers. Um, 
to take a step backwards, because I get this question a lot, you know, I think, I think once you start talking to pediatric providers about medications, particularly about methadone or buprenorphine or naltrexone, people say like, whoa, hold on a second. Should young people, like, should we be giving this stuff to adolescents? And I, I think that that's a reasonable question because we just don't get the training and addiction that we should as pediatric providers. But I wanna make it really clear that the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out and said yes that for young people with severe opioid use disorder, absolutely they should be receiving a medication and it should be one of those three. And that's, that's an evidence-based statement based on randomized clinical trial data. Um, we've done some work though showing that there is a massive treatment gap that really is determined by age. So this is a study that we had come out just a few months ago and it looked uh, at 11 states with Medicaid across the US and it asked the question, if you're diagnosed with opioid use disorder, what percentage of people receive, what percentage of youth receive treatment for that opioid use disorder? And very fortunately, we found that across the board, across these different age groups, so I've got 13 to 15 year olds, 16 to 17 year olds, 18 to 20 year olds, and 21 to 22 year olds across the x-axis here. And then the height of the bar corresponds to the percent that received treatment after being diagnosed. You can see that across the board, about three out of every four young people who are diagnosed with opioid use disorder are getting treatment. But the portion of the bar that's blue represents people that got only behavioral health services, and the portion of the bar that's red represents those that got one of those three FDA-approved medications that we talked about. And what you see is there is a big difference between whether you are under 18 or over 18 such that under 18, only about one in 20 young people diagnosed with opioid use disorder are getting one of these evidence-based medications. And actually, even among people who are over the age of 18, the number isn't great. It's better, it's five times higher, but it's still only about one in four um, young people are getting a medication after being diagnosed. And so there is this massive medication gap across the country. So what are some tips for all pediatric providers? Um, uh, this, is a, this is a big one because it involves sort of changing your practice or adding something new to your practice that can feel time consuming, but it's really a critical one. And this is to screen for substance use routinely in your practice and to refer for treatment. Um, after that, I'm gonna talk about uh, something that actually is a little bit of a lighter lift, even though it feels like a heavy topic. And this is talking about harm reduction and overdose prevention among young people who may be using. And then finally, to think about what we do to reduce stigma for addiction. So this is the screening tool that we most routinely use at my institution and that across the US probably most pediatric providers are using. And it's, uh, it's the craft screen. And basically with the craft screen, you have two parts, part A and part B. And in part A, you just ask the question, during the past 12 months, young person in front of me, on how many days did you drink alcohol, use marijuana, or use anything else to get high. And in this third one, you wanna sort of emphasize that you mean you know, things like e-cigarettes or prescription or over-the-counter medications. That's your opportunity to ask if they're using any pills of any kind. And notice that the wording of this question sort of presupposes that you're using. It doesn't say, did you use, yes or no? It's really saying, on how many days did you use? So it requires the young person to sort of actively say like, oh, zero. Um, and so it, it actually results in a in, um, better sensitivity because the question is worded that way. And then for anybody who's using, you wanna ask these six follow-up questions, um, which I'll talk about in a second in part B. So those six follow-up questions are, have you ever ridden in a car uh, with somebody who's been drinking or using drugs? 
Um, have you ever used alcohol or drugs to relax? Have you ever used alcohol or drugs alone? Have you ever forgotten things um, because of alcohol or drugs? Have you ever blacked out, basically? Um, do your friends or family ever tell you you should cut back on your drinking or drug use? And have you ever gotten into trouble while you're using alcohol or drugs? And this can be with the law or at school or at home, whatever. Then the reason you ask these six questions is that it turns out that if you map the number of positive items that somebody has to these six questions to their likelihood of having a true diagnosable DSM-5 um, substance use disorder, the more items you have positive, the more likely you have a true problem. So once somebody is answering yes to two or three of those, it's more likely than not that they actually have a substance use disorder that needs to be addressed. So then the question becomes, what do you do? So if you find a young person who's using opioids and maybe having problems from their opioid use, how do you refer? Um, well, uh, there are actually a lot of places you can turn in your local community, but one thing that's good to do is go to the government website. So SAMHSA actually has something called the Treatment Locator, which is a website that's powered by a, a map system where you can actually type in your current address. And so I've gone ahead and typed in our, ad our address here. Um, or at least what I think is our address here. Um, it's the arrows in Hartford, so I think I got it. Um, and it will actually, you can sort of refine your search to find uh, substance use treatment programs that focus on opioids. You can check a box. You can check a box that says adolescence. You can check a box that says provides medications for opioid use disorder. And so if you check those things, you actually start to develop these dots in your immediate area. And you can go through with the family and actually pick out some treatment resources with them. And it's actually relatively quick and fairly easy to do. Um, so a, a quick word on some other things that we can be doing for young people who are using um, uh, opioids. So the problem with addiction and what makes it so difficult to treat is that it's really a chronic illness that often has cycles of recovery and relapse. Just like when we're treating hypertension, just like when we're treating obesity, there are gonna be periods of time where people are doing well and sticking to their treatment plan and there are gonna be times where people struggle more. And uh, what's particularly difficult about addiction is that some young adults in particular will come into you and they may want some other services that you provide like reproductive health and family planning and they want to get a physical done, but they don't want to stop their use. They're not ready to stop using. And uh, what I want to try to convince you of today is that even when a young person doesn't want treatment for their addiction, there are other things we can offer them to keep them safe. And these are evidence-based approaches. So what are some things that we can offer? Well, we can offer screening and treatment for HIV, hepatitis C, and STIs. We can talk to young people about safe injection practices and syringe exchange. So you can go out and get clean needles instead of using a needle that your friend gives you. And there are places where you can go to exchange old needles and they will provide these services to young people, particularly young adults over the age of 18. We can offer PrEP to prevent against HIV transmission. And this is considered standard of care now in the US for people who inject drugs. Um, and we can educate people on if you're going to leave this office and still inject, you know, still use opioids, there's some simple things that I can teach you to keep you safe. So you can talk about overdose education and naloxone, which is the overdose reversal agent. Uh, agent. And the point behind these services is that engagement in them has been shown in trials to allow people to more easily obtain treatment when they're ready. So when a young person says, okay, I wasn't ready two months ago, but now I'm ready, they know who to turn to because you offered them a safe environment and helped keep them alive two months ago when you offered them some of these harm reduction services. 
And I want to be really clear because this can feel controversial for many practitioners, but the data are very clear from large journals, including New England Journal and Lancet and JAMA, that distribution of safe injecting equipment, syringe exchange, overdose prevention, this range of harm reduction services is not enabling people to continue their substance use. These services are not associated with increased drug use and not associated with people being less likely to quit drug use. They're actually associated with people engaging in treatment at some point further on down the road. Um, and we should talk to our patients who are using opioids. And this may be true for patients who don't have addiction, but are on long-term opioids because you're managing their pain for their medical condition. Um, that we should be talking to our patients and to our patients' families about naloxone, the overdose reversal agent. And this, again, is not controversial. The U.S. Surgeon General, um, uh, within the last year, had an op-ed uh, or had a commentary piece in JAMA saying, we need to provide this to all of our patients on opioids, whether they have addiction or not. Um, to be clear, this is an overdose reversal agent and an opioid antagonist like naltrexone, but it's different from naltrexone. Naltrexone is what we were talking about before, it's used to treat opioid uh, use disorder. Naloxone is used when you need to reverse somebody's overdose in that moment. They sound similar, but they're different. Um, naloxone is now available in an easy nasal spray at a higher dose of four milligrams. Um, this is uh, uh, unfortunately not available as a generic right now, but is covered by insurance. Um, you may need multiple administrations to reverse um, fentanyl overdose in this era in which fentanyl is highly potent. Um, and it's given out free from many health departments. It can be prescribed. It's typically covered by insurance. And this is what it looks like on the right. It's almost like um, a nasal spray that you would you know, spray if you had a cold. Um, and so my last piece that I'd like to talk about is this. What we need to do as a society, whether you're a pediatric provider or not, um, we need to change the language of addiction to reduce stigma for people who use substances. If you read the newspaper, or you listen to the radio, you hear a lot of really bad words to describe the patients that we care for who struggle with addiction. And a lot of the reason why people who have addiction don't come into our healthcare environments is because they're worried about how we're gonna to react to them. Um, and so we're really making an effort in all of our work to change our language um, for those of us that are working with young people who struggle with addiction. So whereas we might have once heard terms like uh, those you see in the top left of this, what we really are doing is using now person-first language and saying this is a person with addiction. This is not an addict. This is not a substance abuser. I'll say as an aside that there was a, a, a randomized uh, sort of interventional study about five years ago that randomized practitioners to getting two case vignettes, one in which a woman who had substance use disorder was described as that, a woman with substance use disorder, and the other one in which the woman was described as a woman who was a substance abuser. And if you give those two vignettes that are otherwise exactly the same to practitioners, practitioners who receive the one in which a woman is described as a substance abuser and a woman with substance abuse problems are actually more likely to get punitive treatment and less likely to get evidence-based standard of care. And so it shows us that what we write in our notes and how we talk about patients is really critical, that we really should be saying person with addiction, person with opioid use disorder. Um, in, our, in our work, we also avoid words like clean when we talk about somebody um, being in recovery because the opposite of clean is dirty and people who are using substances are not dirty. Um, some people even recommend not using dependence and just saying addiction because um, dependence sort of implies a weakness. 
Um, we don't talk about replacement therapy. We talk about treatment for medications like buprenorphine because that lends itself to the idea that, oh, you're just trading, you're sort of replacing one addiction with another. Um, and for uh, infants who are born substance exposed with neonatal abstinence syndrome, we never want to use the term born addicted because as we talked about, addiction really means behavioral changes in result, you know, as a result of using substances. And babies can't have that, and that's very stigmatizing language for parents and families. So remember what you can do. You can screen and refer. You can talk about overdose prevention and other harm reduction services. And think about the language that we use when we talk about people with addiction. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you.